When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Wednesday, May 17th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we will discuss another ejection due to foreign substances. Domingo Herman tossed from a game on Tuesday. We'll talk about some of my reasoning for the anti-model Lodum approach. I'll explain it. It's not just the harebrained thing that I said in passing. There's actually some reason to consider looking at things that way. We're also going to talk about a few surprising pitchers who have really popped in terms of earned value so far. A bunch of mailbag questions to get to, a variety of topics covered there, but a lot of good questions. So I want to make sure we loaded up the rundown with those today. So midweek mailbag instead of Monday mailbag this week. You know, let's start with Domingo Herman. An automatic 10 game suspension is coming. I had a check a few starts ago against the Twins and wasn't ejected, much to the chagrin of Twins manager Rocco Baldelli. Mm-hmm. I was watching Twins Dodgers last night when they started talking about it again. Like, hey, what was different? And the only thing that was really different from a situational perspective is where the game was being played. A few weeks ago, it was at Yankee Stadium Tuesday night. It was on the road in Toronto. But I want to ask you, did anything abnormal come up in the game log recently anything in terms of spin rates or anything that would be uh, suspicious if you go back as far as that 11 strikeout performance against Cleveland in April and everyone's going to have some suspicion that Herman may have had something extra going on this entire time but are you seeing anything in the numbers that actually supports that not really uh, you know in particular the last start he was up 50 RPM and that is just nothing that is a total nothing burger in terms of um like game to game variation one standard deviation of game to game variation is 150 rpm and he wasn't even one standard deviation not one standard deviation they can say well this is a little bit weirder than normal but that's still not even two or three like three is when you'd be like whoa that guy went from not doing anything at all to totally cheating you know what I mean? That's the three. That's what the definition of sort of the bell curve is. You're going to have this bell curve within one standard deviation is is the bulk of things. Within two, you get like ninety percent, and then the little little tails on the end of the bell of the bell curve. That's the third uh, standard deviation, and so uh, half of one standard deviation is right in the middle. It's just, it's fifty RPM from game to game is is completely normal. Um, the, I think it points to a problem though, uh, over a second, um, which is that what is the baseline? Like when people talk about like, oh, well, let's use RPM or RPM divided by VLO, whatever, uh, to, to spot these, uh, cheaters. Like when, when are they clean? It's like the steroid thing. It's like, when were they clean? What, what are we comparing to? What's the baseline? 
there was nothing weird about this season compared to last season in terms of game to game variation. Um, uh, you know, except that uh, he was on the higher end of his spin for the year. But in terms of if your baseline is the the average for the year, then he was he was fine. He was within it. If you go back to 2021, the beginning of 2020, or you go back to all the way to 2019, there's been an increase, I guess, in terms of his spin rate, in terms of, uh, you know, if you just use a seasonal baseline, um, he's up in 2019, he was down uh, to 2440 on the four seam fastball. And this year he's been around 2530. That's still only 100. It's not even 100, you know? Right, you could make adjustments, legitimate changes. I did ask season, a pitching right? coach about that because there was this idea at some point that the only way to change your spin rate was uh, with sticky stuff. And I have had a couple pitching coaches say, no, they think there are ways. And there is some more advanced research now going into uh, finger pressure with Alex Fast has a, has a new uh, way to measure finger pressure on the ball. And uh, so I do think that there are things about finger pressure, cues that you can use, uh, mechanical changes that can affect your spin rate. Um, but uh, yeah, even if even if you used his very bottom of uh, you know, even if he used the very bottom of his spin rate yearly year year to year sort of his yearly average of the 2019 one, he, you know, this year is fine. It's within average. And in terms of last year, 2539 on the fastball, 2530 this year, you know, 2021, 2482, none of like the year to year, the baseline for him should be around 2,500. And uh, if you look at uh, his game to game, uh, he was at 2591 yesterday. So I just don't see, uh, I don't see evidence within the spin rates. Now, yeah, they touched him, and they said it was super, they were super sticky, but uh, I don't like subjective. Uh, and I, I, one of the reasons I sort of broke the story is I don't like selective enforcement. And another way of saying selective enforcement is subjective enforcement. Am I wrong? I mean, I think I think subjective and selective—they're not—they're not synonyms, but they kind of go hand in hand. <laughs> Using the hand again, but you know, uh, you know, I don't like this. I don't like uh, leaving this up to you know how quote unquote sticky the umpire thinks the hand is. So uh, I'm going to try and develop some sort of test uh, for this that's more objective. Yeah, we need a swab. I, I think we need a swab of the substance, and we need the substance to return as something that is a banned thing. In this case, for Domingo Herman, they had good tight shots of his uniform, where he had good little clumps of, of pine tar, so it was kind of easy to see <laughs> what was going on in this case. The most likely explanation is that if you look at the entire span of his career, you think about when the sticky stuff crackdown started around, what, this time last year, he's probably been using something the entire time, and the subjective nature of how they check guys, how sticky are your hands, which we can't quantify very effectively, has just made it possible for him to just keep doing what he's always been doing to some degree. The other complicating factor, this came up when the Max Scherzer suspension happened, was that if you use the alcohol substance to clean your hands— you can still have some tackiness left over. I don't 
And I have no idea if that's actually what happened in this instance, but it's another problem that goes into the how sticky are his hands thing, right? Well, maybe he was eating pancakes between innings and, you know, got his hands in the syrup. Like, that's obviously not what happened here either. But there's just all these other little variables that could actually increase the tackiness on a pitcher's hand. So, yeah, we do need something better than what we've got right now. And every time we think it's the last time we're going to talk about sticky stuff, we know it's not. Because there's always going to be someone else out there pushing something and another Another ejection, more suspicion coming down the road. That's just the way this works, Dale. For what it's worth, Herman's uh, spin rates never went down during the first enforcement. Yeah. So there you go. There's the other side of it, too, right? There wasn't a, a change then. This points to the when when do you start? <laughs> you know, if you have a baseline, when do you start? So if you go back to enforcement, you say, well, he never went down. Does that mean he never he never thought what he was doing was cheating or, you know? Did he have a good system the entire time for just like having the stuff off his hands by the time they checked it? Like it's more questions than answers. I think so. I'm not going down the, the conspiracy theory road with sticky stuff at the present time. It's and I think it's unfortunate the uh, proximity to the Aaron Judge situation because <laughs> very bad timing. Just because both of these like border closely on nothing burgers, and then. And just to have the two, like, there's that thing where it's just like, there's, well, there's smoke, there's fire, you know? And, like, you know, it just leads to hot takes. And I'm I'm not willing to say the Yankees cheat any more than any other team. Although they did get busted right before the Astros doing the sign stealing. But they got busted along with the Red Sox and, you know, ostensibly changed their ways. And in the where there's smoke department, there were other teams that had stuff going on that we didn't find out about, at least didn't have publicly written stories that were widely consumed, but there's a constant effort within Major League Baseball and with all professional sports, I think, to find an edge and to push the boundaries of the rules and to cheat. That is what happens. The stakes are incredibly high. In the case of Judge, for anyone who somehow hasn't heard the story by now, he, his eyes glanced over to the dugout before a pitch was thrown uh, Jay Jackson, a kind of fringy reliever, threw him a cement mixer over the heart of the plate, and Judge crushed it out to center field. If the Yankees decoded on the field by either watching the catcher or watching Jay Jackson himself or figuring it out so however they can, Jay that's Jackson legal. came out with Ken Rosenthal and said... He was tipping. Said he was tipping, so... So if the pitcher's tipping and the other team picks up on it and they Maybe tell each other what's going is, on... Just helping Judge, like, has just was timing it or had figured it out before Judge or whatever, like, I, It's I don't still know. pretty weird. And, and It's like, that seems within the rules of, like, seems within what people do in baseball. Right, so I, I don't have any outrage about that whole situation. The... The outrage I would have is if technology was back in the equation. If if you but know. they do have a guy for MLB that works for MLB that goes randomly into the dugout and checks, like they're right. they do have a like a, a sniffer, <laughs> like a person who like sniff walks around. I mean, he looks at the video room and he and he does unannounced checks. I mean, it doesn't have to be he. Like they do unannounced checks and check in on the video person and they go down to the dugout and look around. So like there's a person that's looking around for this sort of stuff and so i think it's mostly out of the game yeah so i don't know i'm 
I'm not getting all fired up about it. I know a lot of people are, especially if they're Blue Jays fans, Yankees fans. It's a rivalry. It makes the rivalry more intense, I guess. I don't fault them for asking questions. And even when this stuff is cool on the field, it leads to hit by pitches and brawls and like people don't like it. I'm not saying, you know, you have to like it. Uh, I'm just saying it seems within the boundaries of normal gameplay. And I would say the same of Domingo Herman until I really had better evidence. You know, I, I think the one thing that I have a problem with the swab is that like a swab for a substance, then you have to have something that I guess a swab that turns color, but then it have to it would have to be a test that like could happen on the field right away. And it would have to be for a list of substances. And then you'd have an arms race for a substance that's not on the list. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, so my my thing is to sort of attack the stickiness and to have some sort of stickiness benchmark where you're like this is too much stickiness and i have a test here where i can test your stickiness and there are some stickiness tests out there industry stickiness tests that i've I've discovered on twitter thanks to twitter i love i love it sometimes you know i hate it a lot but i love it sometimes when you're like oh like this person knows about like a a tackiness test that's like used in printing processes it's like whoa all right that could be it that could be the the answer tackiness twitter the whole uh, whole column of people i don't have in tweet deck yet publishing but. printing twitter uh, what's up <laughs> <laughs> there is one other yankees thing i thought we should talk about wandy peralta is actually getting saves for them right now this is a 31 year old kind of journeyman reliever it seems like it's more of a mix and match thing than a clear peralta is the guy and he's safely going to record every save opportunity for the yankees going forward but This is an unexpected twist within this bullpen because I think at one point it looked like Michael King as their best reliever could end up getting more save opportunities. It also looked like Ron Marinaccio could be a part of the equation. And both of those things could still be true because when you look at Wandy Peralta's skills over the course of his career, he doesn't have an overwhelming strikeout rate. Right now he's at a 23.9%. That is a career best. And he's having trouble with walks, which he's had trouble in the past with, 14.1%. So, yeah, like... It's just barely good enough to get the job done. And yeah, maybe if they want to use the other guys in more specialist roles, he could end up getting more saves. But this seems like more of a, a committee at best situation for me and and one where I wouldn't want to, if he wasn't picked up already, I wouldn't want to be too aggressive fab wise based on what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in, um, you know, uh, when we have looked at anything that has a whiff of predictive quality for role change. It usually has to do with Velo strikeout rate. Um, you know, his Velo is not bad, but his strikeout rate is, is like average for a reliever, 23.9, you know? And then the walk rate is not something that I've necessarily seen proven um, that, it, that it matters in terms of the closer role, but it just seems really intuitive that you do not like to have a closer that walks people. I mean, you know what I mean? Like they're likely to put the tying run on base. Not great. Walking people. And uh, I don't love that. So the combination of putting the guy on base, I guess he is a good sinker baller. He does have the good ground ball rate. He does suppress homers. So the idea is maybe he puts the guy on base and then erases them with a double play. I think Michael King has not been the option because he's still doing multiple innings. I don't know if they're ever going to change that. Uh, but he's obviously settled into their multiple innings role. I just want to point out, though, that uh, I think the answer for them is the old answer. And uh, Clay Holmes has kept a kleptic, 
kept a clean sheet since the 6th. And that is six straight appearances with zero runs, one walk. Uh, we've got something like seven innings over that time. Um, and he's given up six hits, uh, no walks, no homers, tons of ground balls. He's my guy. I know there's a little bit of a risk with lefties. Um, but then, even then, Wandy Peralta is not a great platoon guy for him because Wandy Peralta's best pitch might be the changeup. Um, and so it's a little bit weird to like bring in a lefty to maybe get some lefties out with a changeup. Um, so I kind of think Clay Holmes is, is going to take this job back. All right. So if we had to break it down, it's, it's Holmes 70 to 80% of the saves, maybe, and then scraps and whatnot to Peralta and the others based on the current situation. That's where I'm going. The one guy that I like to like maybe just run with it was Ian Hamilton, but he's hurt, um, and he's not necessarily. I mean he he was working his way towards uh, more high leverage uh, situations, but like Clay Holmes has two ho- two holds in the last in his last two appearances, and uh, you have to go back to the eighth of May to get a hold uh, for for uh, Ian Hamilton. And actual usage is uh, perhaps the most predictive thing for closer changes. It's like who's getting the holds is maybe the easiest way to find a closer. Yeah, I, I think that tends but to the, be the order. The Everyone seems to move up a chair in the age, right? Yeah, you move up a chair exactly. <laughs> it's not very scientific, but uh, it is somewhat effective. And you know, Hamilton's, I think, hurt. So, yeah, I do like Hamilton as more of like a deep, deep uh, keeper dynasty, just extra pitcher on your roster sort of guy, though, just because. Clay Holmes, 30 years old, doesn't seem like a guy that's going to have the job for two or three more years. Just seems like the guy that has the job right now or the inside track to the bulk of the job for the time being. Let's move on to some surprising pitchers. I used the cutoff of $15. I was looking at the Rotowire earn values for the season because it always, always in mid-May will turn up some names you don't expect it to. You get guys that have great ratios, tack a few extra wins on that, makes a pretty big difference. In something like this. Yeah, sometimes like the relievers pop, right? Because there's just like some guys who have like a 0-5 ERA and like Yeah, like Yenier Cano yeah. is a sixteen dollar pitcher right now because he's got an ERA <laughs> of zero and a point one nine four whip and over a strikeout burning. He's got a handful of saves, get three saves to win also. But yeah. ratios like that will uh will definitely pop. Now Eduardo Rodriguez, who we talked about earlier this week, is now a thirty one dollar pitcher. In here, this is a 10-team league. I'm going to switch it to a 15-team league. I'm going to use 65% spent on batters if anyone else has the tool open. $33 if you make those adjustments now for Erod. So that makes him the third starter behind Zach Gallen and Joe Ryan, just the way we all drew it up. Um, A good reminder that a quarter of a season is not a whole season, and any one, any combination of players can be higher or lower on this list than they should be over eight or nine starts. It's not like a counting stat where like you can only no. add dollars, you know, like he can subtract dollars from you pretty quickly. Right. It'd be really cool to see a visual like a visualization of this um, month by month or week by week where you could just see guys rising and falling. Until I they get picked to their him eventual up and then he was worth minus five dollars over the next month. <laughs> yeah. And I think at some point I'm going to have an exercise on the show where I just take a, a random season and I show everybody the results by month. 
and you have to figure out, was this a good season? Was this a bad season? <laughs> was this an average season? Because we don't think in terms of, in we, even if you look at weeks of fantasy baseball, uh, when I look at the NFBC and I, I start picking up players, I always have the, the weekly tab when I start looking at the game log. I'm like, how much is he playing? I use weekly for that. How many at-bats is this guy getting on a week-to-week basis? But even when I see you know, a home run, two runs, two RBIs, my brain's not really calibrated to go, is, is that really good? Or is that just kind of what I should be getting from this guy? Or is that even a little bit less? Uh, it's the same kind of thing. You just, you're not trained to think about player values on a micro level. And it might be a problem to do it. It might lead you to make more mistakes. But I thought a couple of these pitchers were worth bringing up. So Erod at 33, we talked about earlier in the week, just thought it was funny he was that high. Mitch Keller at 31 is number four right now on this list. Justin Steele, we haven't talked about him much at all this season, is a top 10 pitcher, $28 so far. I didn't see anything I was really excited about with Justin Steele. There were good results in the second half of last season, so there was some proof of concept that he had uh, something that was going to work. He's doing this in the face of a lower strikeout rate. This was a guy that didn't have an amazing strikeout rate to begin with. It was just kind of solid, 24.6% last year. Strikeout burning stuff, it's fine for a starter. But what he's done, he's actually lowered the walk rate He's pitching to a 2.44 ERA, a 103 whip so far. Six wins, a big part of why he is popping so far. I look at him. I see the K rate down. I have immediate concerns. I also think he's the kind of guy that you wouldn't get a lot for in a trade anyway. So I think the question is, what should you reasonably expect from him going forward? It seems to me there's a very good chance the the best quarter of Justin Steele's season has already happened. But what will the next three quarters of his season look like? Well, both of these guys are locating the ball well, and they're enough into the season where there's some predictive quality to that location. You can see that even though Steele is striking fewer batters out, he's also walking fewer batters. Um, And that location does show up in things like batting average on balls in play and home runs per nine, although not... Uh, not in a way that you would just say, oh, look, he's got a, you know, what is it that Rodriguez has? He has like a, a 209 Babip and he's locating the ball well, so he's going to continue doing that. So like not in that way. Uh, but if you wanted to like look through the different projections and say, hmm, you know, ATC has him with a 295 Babip going forward. I like that. You know, he's locating the ball well this year. This is going to be one of his best years when it comes to co- uh, command and, and walk rate. And so maybe he's going to also limit the balls in play a little bit and limit the homers. And you take that 295 batter from ATC and you take that uh, 274 walk rate from uh, the bat and you put it together and you get something like a 3-8-ish ERA going forward with the round of eight strikeouts per nine. Um, you know, that uh, is going to be useful. And you can do the same game with Steele um where uh, you take the lower walk rates you take the lower home run rates you you put it all together and you come up with a i would say like a 3638 kind of uh, ERA going forward so both these guys are going to be useful but the the trick about 38 is at 38 he's also going to give you some 44s and some 45s and some fives you know and so what i would just say is both these guys are keeps. Both these guys are guys you want on your roster. And both these guys are guys I would not start every time out. 
Yeah, and I think Justin Steele would fit into the new uh, Lodum approach. <laughs> the anti-model, uh, air quotes, the anti-model approach is not, I'm not the person that's sitting here saying models are useless, projections are useless. I'm the person saying that if everyone in the room is using the model or the projections or both, and they're looking through players the same way, the advantage is to look at them through a different lens. You can still make some catastrophic errors doing this, so you can't just go willy-nilly and have absolutely no reason whatsoever for uh, going after certain players. But you know, when you look at the steel projections, the bat has them at 454 for the ERA and a 141 whip the rest of the way. So this would be the kind of pitcher that is probably easy to trade for, relatively speaking, compared to his performance. If we think he's going to exceed the projection, He's a good target because many people won't believe. Many people will look at the flaw, the limited velo on the fastball, the low strikeout rate so far, and say, I can't be there when this goes wrong. And as long as you can reasonably find something, either the home park, the team context, uh, maybe an ability to avoid hard contact, maybe that's a skill that Justin Steele actually has. We've seen it in the home run rate going back to last season, right? Home run issues really were never a problem for him in the minors, and other than his first foray into the big leagues back in 2021. He's done that at the big league level too. So there might be something here that models and projections don't necessarily agree with, but they will eventually find and catch up to. So it's picking your spots, right? It's not, again, it's not anti, it's not like an anti-science or anti-numbers or anything like that. It's leverage. This game Fantasy baseball is a game based on leverage and outliers and finding things before other people find them. That's the reasoning behind the Lodum idea and, and an anti-model sort of approach. I'm still using those tools. I'm just trying to figure out when those tools might be missing something or leading us astray, which is a fine line to walk. Yeah, you're, uh, uh, you're making an argument against yourself, though. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm totally making an argument against myself. It's, <laughs> it's like a philosophy class nightmare where I'm just I'm just like spinning circles over here. It's like, wait, all the things I believe are the things everyone else believes about players. Therefore, what I believe about players is not as helpful as it should be. It's not wrong, but it's not necessarily optimal. That's the hard part. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it's also not an argument against us. It's in a way like, you know, what we try to do is... Uh, give you certain ways to look at players um and uh just even like putting your own shade on that is is we would like that you know we're not trying to create a robot army of people that just see it the way we see it you know um so like you know if if you think uh, location plus like you know tango went out and tom tango went out and he's the chief data architect for for baseball and he didn't find much predictive quality for location and so he doesn't love it uh, when we when we put it into our era projections though we found usefulness and uh even when baseball perspectives looked at it they found usefulness uh for for location plus and so if you just sort uh, this year's uh leaderboard of of pitchers that have thrown 20 innings uh, and do it by location plus instead of stuff plus, you will be looking at it from a different angle than a lot of people, right? <laughs> Who will be mostly starting by stuff plus. And then uh, there's some interesting names that come to the top because uh, Lance Lynn, 10th in location plus among these pitchers. Uh, and his game has always been 
mix around an assorted uh, group of okay fastballs. They're worse this year than ever before, but um, you know, I don't think uh, I, you know. I think he can may still make it work. Uh, I have I've been out on him, but because I look at that stuff and I think it's at ninety stuff plus, he's just too far gone. Uh, but Marco Gonzalez, eighty-eight stuff plus one hundred nine location plus third best location plus in baseball. Like, there's still some usefulness there, and this is part of why Martin Perez makes it work despite a seventy-eight stuff plus. Bailey Falter at eighty has a unique uh, sort of arm angle uh, and a, a type of a type of movement that pitch pitch that people don't see that often uh, a little bit sort of drew smiley esque you know um uh, so there you know there are different ways to uh look at uh what we're doing and then you know uh there's also just um sort of reading the tea leaves beyond it so we we've been talking about Alec Thomas we have breaking news breaking news Alex Thomas Alex Thomas has been sent down you could tell it was coming Dominic Fletcher was doing good things with that playing you time. You brought it up with Dominic Fletcher and uh and and, and sort of mentioned that um he might think make they make things difficult for Alec Thomas. I think he just yesterday on the on the cast when we were talking about it. Uh but you can you can you can still look at things through the way that we were looking at it and looking at like well, this is okay, the strikeout rate's okay, the barrel rate's okay. But also, you know, zoom out and say, well, the Diamondbacks are trying to win. And I think that they're going to play Dominic Fletcher because he's coming up and he's going to give him a better chance to win tomorrow rather than two years from now. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to kind of parse the different, uh, you know, stats that we talk about on our show, the different ways we look at things on the show. Yeah, it, it's so hard because the... The past, I think, gets overrated by some people. Like, oh, it used to be so much better. Players used to be this way. Like, the people do that. Usually, they're older folks. Usually, you don't have like young people saying the past was amazing because they weren't there. They still lived at home. They still lived at home. I think the, <laughs> the future can be a little overrated sometimes, right? We look at players' potential in the long run and we dream too much on that. And then somehow the present gets a little bit underrated. Like, what's happening right now? But what I think is hard about the present is the exact decision that the Diamondbacks were faced with. Dominic Fletcher comes up, and he's doing more than Alec Thomas is. You can't, in the face of a player playing that well, go back to the guy that you think is the better long-term player. At least if you do, it's a really hard decision to make. I think it's hard to justify it in in the clubhouse when you're trying to win right now. Mm, the, the clubhouse dynamics is really interesting. That's why I talk about like the order of young prospects having to come up. Why Mike, Mike Matt McLean may have come up before uh, Ellie De La Cruz. You know, like mm-hmm. there's clubhouse dynamics where people are like, "No, Matt's been here for years. He deserves it." And well, why is Alec Thomas still up here? He's hitting 195, and and we can say, "Well, we don't think 195 is predictive," you know. <laughs> but like that might not matter if you're trying to win games. And the other times, there's like he's hitting 195. He's hitting 395. Why is that guy starting today? Well, we can look at a player and look at the core skills and say this is what he should do over a full season. But sometimes they just don't get the full season for reasons out of our control injury, demotion, someone else playing better. Like those are all things that you can't always account for. But teams have to make that decision. Just like we have to make decisions in season about what to do. I, I think this comes up 
in every league, but I think it's hardest in a, like a 10-team mixed league. I don't play in any 10-team mixed leagues right now. The last time I played in one, I think it was maybe last year, the Listener League, was there 10 or 12 teams. And that was tough because you had to be like, well, i got to drop this good player right now. All the time. You're stuck with this choice between the really good established players you drafted who are in prolonged slumps, the Jose Abreu types. You have to decide on those players. And they, they're cuts first in a 10-team league before they get start getting cut in more like the leagues we play in. And you have to decide, are the young yeah, rookies Alec that come Thomas up... has been cut in those leagues. Like, oh, you've never drafted one. in those leagues. <laughs> yeah. But then you have to decide on prospects. How long do you wait on prospects to figure it out? Ezekiel Tovar was probably cut six weeks ago after the first week or first two weeks. He was probably dropped in those I've leagues, got but a that was still a tough drop. team dynasty where I've been nursing Alec Thomas along on the bench because I'm like, yeah, this is good for the future. And now I'm like, oh, God. Now he's probably now. probably a drop in a 12-team yeah. dynasty league. It's terrible. I hope he doesn't become good on someone else's team, though. Grr. So here's the reason why I think he... You're not dropping him because you don't believe in him as a result of the Diamondbacks sending him down. You're dropping him because you need that roster spot to help you right now. And the time it's going to take for Thomas to come back, earn the role you think he's going to earn, and play at the level you need him to play at to be relevant in a 12-team <laughs> league, that could be two years. You should see my IL in that league. <laughs> I've got O'Neill Cruz, Reese Hoskins. Oh my God, it's so good. It's right here. O'Neill Cruz, Reese Hoskins, Tyler O'Neill, uh, and uh, uh, Jacob Degrom, Drew Rasmussen, Brandon Woodruff, Edwin Diaz, and I had I've already dropped Luis Garcia and Tyler Malley uh, because uh, I just didn't have enough IL slots. So I think Alec Thomas has just got to go, dude. I got I got to somehow win today's game, just like the D-backs. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to play for the present on some level. Even if you're in a keeper league, even if you're in a dynasty league, you're playing for now sometimes. So you have to think like a team playing for right now. And teams in the middle in baseball, especially this time of year, are really asking those tough questions. Okay, we're not where we want to be, but we're better than we thought or we're as good as we thought. What's our we, next move ready to make to us a little better? Yet. We're not ready to sell yet. Like let's 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 put our best team on the field for another month, and if we're still not really in the mix, then we can start bringing Alec Thomas back up or bringing these guys back up. And that easily describes a half dozen teams, if not more, at, at this point in time. Um, there was a Lance Lynn question that came in though that I thought was relevant since he, he came up, pitched really well on Tuesday night, which maybe opens the door. If you're in a situation where you were holding and waiting and hoping for a turnaround, you bank this really good start. Maybe it opens the eyes of a few other folks in the league. So there's kind of a, do you hold them? Do you move them? Uh, the question came from Andrew. Andrew said, some are pointing to Lynn's track record, swinging strike rate, K rate, and Babbitt saying the results he's had so far are just bad luck. I pulled these numbers off fan graphs. It looks like a real skills degradation to me. And there's a reason he's been getting hit harder. Is that how you would see the situation? Also, how much does the Stuff Plus model change from season to season? With the tweaks being made, can it be misleading to compare Stuff numbers between seasons for a single player? And is it just better to use it to compare pitches within the same season? So there was a screenshot of Lynn's Stuff numbers going back to 2020. And it Stuff Plus overall, I think, went from 106 to 104 to 97 to 90 this season. So just a progressive decline, which... Given his age and what he does, it kind of makes sense that it would track out and that way. Fastball but, stuff plus in particular. And he mostly throws fastballs. So mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty big hit for a guy like Lynn. I tried to look at just the last two weeks uh, to see, you know, to capture that good start, you know. 
and uh, 18 innings in the last 14 days, 85 stuff plus on the fastball, 83 on the sinker, 100 on the cutter. So that's better than he's been doing. And it still does not leap off the page to me. And yes, 111 location plus. So he basically had a couple games where he located the ball really well. That has been part of what he's done in the past. But he just, it's a little bit too Marco Gonzalez-y for me. You know, and yes, I know the strikeout numbers aren't, aren't the same. But in terms of like, he's relying too much on command these days. And so even if I think he's going to rebound some, I think he's going to have the worst home run rate of his career. Uh, I think he's going to have, you know, one of the worst whips of his career. I mean, he did have a, a one five three in twenty eighteen. Um, it's going to be it's going to be maybe better than that, but otherwise, I think it's going to be one of his worst years. And going forward, I would just cherry pick the worst projection. You know, four five eight from the bat, one two seven whip. Uh, 8.9 strikeouts per nine, like that feels about right to me, you know, if I'm kind of trying to wade between all the numbers. If you look at the rest of season projection for Lynn from the bat, 458 ERA, 127 whip, that's the worst of the Fangraphs projections. We've mentioned before, the bat has adjusted to the run environment. Some of the projection systems haven't. Justin Steele is 454 and 141, so worse in the whip. What I think is interesting is that you could very easily in Make a league of trades for selling steel for Lynn. You could trade steel for Lynn, but you'd you also get more trade. back with Lynn, right? So mm. it, I, I'm saying more as like a how, how much do you fully like how much faith do you want to put in the projections? Because they should end up at about the same place. You might get a better whip from Lynn based on the projections. You might even get more strikeouts from Lynn. Those strikeouts might be more reliable. So do you? You go with what the the sheet says, knowing you can get a second player back, or if you make it a two for two, that by getting Lynn, you're getting an upgrade in that second spot because you're giving up the guy that looks so much better in the results that have happened so far. I mean, how how would you play it? I'm not doing it. I feel like I need game show music after a question like that. I'm not doing it. It's a good one. It's a good idea. I'm not doing it. It's out there. I want to see if anyone does it. Screenshot it if you pull it off because uh, <laughs> I want to know. And then you got to set a reminder for uh, like October 1st to circle back around and be like, hey, my whole season, my whole life turned around after face. I did that. You can dance in my face if you got it right. <laughs> I don't have a clear answer on that. Uh, as far as the model you know, changing from season to season, does that make it a little bit harder? Because you retrain the model. Does that make it harder to make the comparisons as Andrew asked? Or does it retroactively go back and adjust the past seasons based on how it's been retrained so you can make those year-to-year comparisons on a fair basis? Anytime you're looking at numbers uh, on there, you know whatever the model is, it's, it, it's, uh, it's consistent across the years. Yeah, it's retroactively applied, so you don't have to worry about it being different. If anybody's interested in sort of uh, under the table uh, stuff, I, I think Christian Javier was something that we were talking about on Twitter today. Uh, his stuff plus number is down a lot, even though his ride is only down, you know, on the order of a half inch or so. His velo is down, uh, you know, less than a tick. Um, and his release point is up, uh, you know, on the order of an inch or two or three. So, um, you know, all these things seem like small. And um, I think Lance Brodzdowski, who does really good work on Twitter, um, 
pointed out that he thinks it's an overcorrection and that the driveline model still has uh, Javier's uh, fastball as as a plus and uh, obviously the results are there. Um, this also feeds into the Yenier Cano thing that we've been talking about. Like, why do why do people who have really unique uh, skill sets or, or or movement profiles uh, do so poorly in the in the uh, model? So here are the things that we are considering doing right now. We just had a meeting. Pitching Plus just had a meeting, <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> the the priorities are this: uh, altitude adjusting. Uh, that would do a better job of predicting Carlos Estevez uh, away from home. You, you look now; he has a 120 plus stuff plus, um, and he in Colorado he didn't. So uh, that's because altitude affects movement. So does weather and pressure. So like that's a big thing where we want to. We're not trying to adjust the results as part of it. We're just trying to say, hey, let's create a baseline for movement. Like if you were pitching at at sea level. What would everybody's stuff plus look like? You know, just so that um, it ports better from from park to park, and so um, that's what we're we're looking at there. One other thing we're looking at is platoon adjusting stuff plus. There, you'll notice that a sweeper has a huge stuff plus and a mediocre pitching plus. That's because it's of the platoon split issue. So that's a known issue. Uh, we're thinking about doing that. The third is a little bit wonky, but I think people can hang with me for a second. When a new pitch comes in and it has a unique profile, the model is looking for comps and it doesn't find any. And so it'll look for a nearest comp and just be like, eh, it's like this other poo-poo pitch, so it's poo-poo, you know? <laughs> but uh, that's not the right answer. And what we can do, uh, Bayesian statistics has this idea that like, you uh you can find priors you can find uh, you can find semi comps you can find you can find whiffs of comps you can be like oh you know what Yenir Kano's uh pitch is not like anybody else's but it's a little bit like this oh and and these types of movements have been good in the past and this sync is generally and fade is generally good so let's even though we can't find a, a specific comp we can say the things it's doing are a little bit like things that have been done in the past a little bit and so let's give it a little bit of credit for those other things it's a little bit like you know um and so that's uh you know that's somewhat in there due to the mechanics of machine learning but we want to see if we can increase that ability so that when a new pitch enters the stratosphere, uh, we don't have to wait for a retraining. So uh, I think those three things uh, will improve stuff. Plus, it's it's uh, this is another thing that I think is interesting about your anti-model or, or, or this model idea um, is that. Uh, you know, my dad has been betting for for years, and he always is like, "Oh, I made a tweak to the model," and like, "Oh, it's good, it's going good now." And uh, <laughs> my first reaction is, "Is you don't actually have a model if you're tweaking it all the time." So, <laughs> so part of me wants to be like, "No, let's just leave stuff plus as it is a whole year. Let's do it. Let's just go with it." Um, on the other hand, there's a if you have a growth mindset, and and somebody points out a flaw or somebody points out this, you want to grow and learn. And you want to improve the model. And so um, that's why we do, of course, always backtrack and like, you know, reverse engineer, like do everybody before too, so that the model is consistent all the way through to the best of the knowledge we have. But it's a thing that is a problem in general in baseball, which is we know that we're going to be wrong about some of the stuff we think we're right about right now. 
but we have to we have to broadcast especially within our organization the, the these are the things we know and we believe in them we might know more later but don't worry about that this is the best we can do right now <laughs> but an anti-model approach might look at that and be like well the model is telling me what the best we know now but i in my brain might be able to sort of poke some holes into it and sp- and, and and find some ways through where i can even beat this model that's now on fangrass or everyone to see right Right. So if somebody comes up with an Ian Hamilton slider and um, and there's nobody else that has an Ian Hamilton slider and stuff plus says it's not good, I can be like, well, I'm gonna go pick up Ian Hamilton. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, uh, I, that might have been all a bunch of gobbledygook, but it's a uh, it's there's a the struggle to sort of want to leave something in place that has value and then also to improve it. You have to keep moving it though. I, I think that's fundamentally like important because it's nothing's perfect we're trying to predict right, the future exactly yeah. so you have to keep the anti-model approach is basically just trying to find cracks that are going to be included later yeah right exactly yeah. i got there before the model did therefore i got the good season for pennies on the dollar the model caught up and then you all paid full price later so mm. if i'm right about matthew libertor and he's a fraction of the price of other starting pitchers that come up this year then that's a win for me. And if the model sees, oh no, he did make some changes and, and this and that, this is all different. Great. I, I hope, I hope they gets it right. That's that's a better future for the collective. By the way, all of us. He's up and I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> he's up and you're out. Yes. Uh, he has the base the best comp I can find in AAA to his numbers are basically a David Peterson with slightly more command. Oh, well, that's gonna be horrible but you know what <laughs> that's what i need i need that i need there to be something else there throw 300 uh dollars at him in fab uh also um very interesting was in the regards to that last conversation was brandon williamson's debut <laughs> yeah, it's really well in colorado <laughs> where i was like this guy th- he was a he was a lodum dude because oh, yeah. he was he, he has like a six Point seven K nine in the minor leagues and like uh, awful ERA and the stuff plus didn't like him had like an eighty five stuff plus or something in the minor leagues and uh, he came up and shoved against the Rockies in Colorado and you know I'm I'm looking at uh, his his stuff plus which is gonna be wrong because he was in Colorado <laughs> right um, yes another another important detail and it looks like. If I'm just going to mentally give him some stuff plus because he's in Colorado, it looks like he has a good cutter and a good slider. I don't know if that's enough, man. It was an 82 stuff plus in cores. Well, how much are you going to give him? You're going to give him 20 points of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, despite him like having a new cutter in the minor leagues, um, you know, it didn't it didn't show it, it, as great stuff plus. And then you know, just the poor strikeout rates and my only poor strikeout minus walks. Like I'm, I'm still out. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, uh, interested to see what kind of fab people will drop on, uh, on Libertor and, 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 uh, and Williamson. That's, that's, those are the Lodum guys this week. Yeah. Well, Williamson, see with, even within Lodum, I'm not taking a guy that has a 12% walk rate above double a, like that's a problem in Cincinnati, especially you're going to put extra guys on the bases there. Mm-hmm. bad stuff is going to happen to you. So there's still there's still some common sense. Now I realize that the chapter meetings for Lodum 
which by the way, the next one is at the Chuck's Donuts in the parking lot in Redwood City. Uh, donuts oh, we provided. Got the good bring your own ube cigarettes. Donuts. They've got good ube donuts there. Yeah, you could smoke, but you got to bring your own cigarettes. I'm not going to provide those for anybody. <laughs> it's very analog. You still look back at different things and you're like, okay, well, the walk rate's crap. The home run rate's really bad. We know home run rates are noisy, but if you put both those things together, that's really bad. Oh, does he strike guys out? No, nope, not really. He doesn't do that anymore. Okay. <laughs> you got you to gotta have something. The, the, even the lodum has to have something to put your right. hand your hat on. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, our, our anti-hipsters, not also hipsters, though. Like, that's sort of what this is. Like, we're just looking for our own little niche to be to be cool. And, and using old tools sometimes to do it. I guess Libertor, good, good, uh, good ground ball rate, uh, good strikeout rate, 30% strikeout rate. Yeah, and I wonder too, like when you look at the Cardinals, the, defensively they have not been the same team this year that they've been in recent years. Not all of that could possibly be attributed to changes in the catcher position. Uh, I realize Nolan Gorman being in the field isn't necessarily a good thing for them, but if you had to predict it, wouldn't you predict that their defense going forward is probably better than it was for the first 40 games? So the team context is still probably pretty good for the Cardinals from a pitching perspective. So the you have that. The context is still, still pretty good. Yep. And when you look at Libertor, at least you get the, the big strikeout rate at AAA. Mm-hmm. And you get a walk rate you can live with. And a home run rate that's not bad. Again, back to analog. But by analog, there's, there's stuff here. And he's trying to make the changes. This is the other part of our game. It's a big mix. I mean, that's something that's always been tough for the model uh, is been a big mix, right? Yeah. Because there's different ways you can port, port, you know, port it together. You can sequence crazy. You can uh, just keep them on their heels. Uh, the When I look at the per pitch numbers for him, the slider is plus, uh, but he uses a lot less than the curveball, which is also above average. Um, and he locates the fast, the four seam fastball well, despite bad shape. And there are other pitchers who have just put the fastball in that skinny sliver that's in the strike zone, above the hitting zone, and below walks. Um, if that it almost doesn't matter how good your fastball shape is, if you can consistently hit that part, you know what I mean? Um, and so, like the the story you can tell for Libertor is. He hits the top of the zone with the four-seam fastball. He throws the sinker uh, to righties. He throws the four-seam fastball high and tight to lefties. Um, and he's got two different breaking balls uh, that are plus. So there is there is a story you can tell. And that's actually a better story than, uh, you know, uh, I would say that I can tell for David Peterson, who is uh, people are also asking me about. So I'll just run him down. He's got the plus slider. His fastball shape is worse. None of his location numbers are good. So you can't even be like, he's going to hit that sliver with the fastball. So uh, so I guess it, it might sound like damning with fate praise to say David Peterson with command. But if you did give David Peterson command, he would have a much better chance than he does now. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data 
enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash rates23. That's linkedin.com slash rates23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash rates23 and get started. So I've got a, a fastball heat map on the screen. It's from this season. And I'm curious to know, would that fit in that sliver? Is that good enough as far as locating the fastball in a who place that? that's... Who do you think it is? Peterson? It's not Peterson. It's someone we've talked about today. Um, he doesn't throw very hard, and he really only throws one other pitch. The fastball slider guy that has exceeded expectations. Justin Steele. Oh, Justin Steele. Is that good? I think that's pretty good. I mean, it's like middle middle's not really there. Right. I'm a little bit... Oh, is this like for lefties or righties? It's for everybody. It's just where he throws them overall. So I, you, we should split them probably by handedness. But I'm guessing that's in on the hands of lefties. That should be in on the hands of righties based on the view. Oh, on righties. It's high enough though? You're okay with that? that that's consistently elevated enough? I think enough? it'd be better if it was up higher, but... Yeah, especially at like 92, 93, where he tends yeah. to live. Yeah, I think that little that little arm that's like higher that I like that better. The yeah, the edge of the egg. Yeah, yeah. You want to be at the top of the griddle. I think there is something to heat maps that you know that does not get captured by models very well because models have to parse those heat maps into boxes, and so they're just like it's very like I've got to enforce my will on this heat map, right? And then we, as people, will look at that. Like, sometimes I do heat map things where I'm like, oh, give me percentage of sliders in this middle zone or something, right? And then it doesn't, it doesn't actually parse right. And I'm like, that doesn't, wait, it does not make it make sense. Um, but if you, like, like, for example, when we looked at Josh Lowe earlier, like, there's a real difference to his uh, contact rates high in the zone. If you look at the heat maps, it sort of pops, so. I do think there's some value into heat maps. I mean, I know that like advanced scouts, for example, the way that baseball is played, advanced scouts are looking at heat maps. Yeah, uh, it makes sense. You want to know tendencies. You want to know where guys are locating. And, and if you can do something Sometimes tendencies about that. don't have hard boundaries. You know what no. I mean? Sometimes it's not just like, oh, this box, you know? And the people pitching aren't like, oh, I can hit that little box. You know? <laughs> no, it's like up, in, down, whatever. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. the, more like D-pad Don't directions. Don't let it leak that way. <laughs> Don't let it leak that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's more like that. Uh, I've got a few mailbag questions. We'll try to squeeze in as many as we can. One from Robert. Is anything wrong with Emmanuel Class A? Strikeouts have bottomed out 14.8% strikeout rate so far this season for Class A. ERA approaching three. He is on pace for another 40 save season so far. Uh, he's allowed 20 hits, though, in 21 and a third inning so far. He allowed just 43 in 72 and two-thirds last season. So do you see something actually wrong, or is this a case of yeah, it's been about a quarter of a season, but for a reliever, that's still a really limited amount of work. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong. I guess the only thing that's uh, quote-unquote wrong about him is that given his level of stuff, he's always allowed you know a few more balls in play than you expect. And this year, it's a little bit worse, but in terms of underlying uh, numbers or anything, I don't I don't really see anything wrong with what he's doing, so... I would assume that some tiny part of it is the shift rules um, and the other part of it is noise. And then the other part of it is some 
sort of long-term tendency is of allowing balls in play so that he's always open to uh, this possibility, right? There's always the chance that because he does not strike out like 45% of the people, like a lot of other top closers, that something like this would happen. Yeah, I mean, it's filthy. It's it's nearly 100 with movement. He's down a mile and a half per hour on the fastballs this season, but he's at 98.1. We're going to worry about that? Like, no. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's strange for sure, but I do think the, the shift rules might be something I didn't really think a lot about with Class A in particular, but he does allow more balls in play than you'd expect. So uh, if you had to project it going forward, I mean, you're comfortable buying into a return close to a strikeout per inning, Another part of this with Class A, by the way, he's always been good at keeping the ball in the park, still doing that, and he's always had really good control. Like A lot of closers that have electric stuff don't come into the league as young as he did with a low walk rate, and he's maintained that. Yeah, I'd, I'd expect the ERA to go down. I know the projections are for Jim to continue about this, but they're never going to really project a guy uh, to... Uh, have a really low BABIP, you know, or like, uh, you know, they're all saying, oh, 289, but his career BABIP is 252, you know. So um, here, oops, I didn't mean to do that. Just close the tab I wanted to look at. Reopen. No, and then I just reopened all of them. Oh my God. I just want to reopen last close. Oh, good Lord. This is all falling apart. I just wanted to find the PPPR. PPERA projection. Here it is. It's a little bit old, but Classe had a 252, actually. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong. He's got a clear grip on that job. It's it's not exactly what you wanted, but it's also not terrible. Yeah, I think he's more likely to go to the 8 to 9 Ks per 9 range again the rest of the season than to stay down like this. Really, really tough guy to hit. So just seems like a smaller sample problem to me. Thanks a lot for that question. Let's uh, get to one from Josh. Josh wonders if we should start to value Jacob deGrom like an elite reliever. I've managed to avoid the headache that is Jacob deGrom for the last several years, but he is endlessly fascinating to me. got me thinking his elite results, but low innings totals sound a lot like a reliever. Sure enough, over the last couple of years, his numbers are remarkably similar to some of the top relievers in the league with no end in sight to deGrom's injury issues. Should we start valuing him the same way? We value elite relievers. Now, what I did is I took the 2022 Fangraphs auction calculator and just ran it to see where DeGrom turned up. And he was just yeah, under really. 10 bucks, like right around that range. And he was right next to Paul Sewald, who was a committee leading closer. And I think he was within reach of Evan Phillips, who really didn't get a lot of saves last year. It was just kind of like the reliever that got wins, which kind of says, okay, nine, 10 bucks. If... If DeGrom ever gets treated like that in drafts, then it's a no-brainer because he still has, within his range of outcomes, the stays healthier than a reliever. And even if it's 100 innings, that's more than any of those short relievers would throw. There's a higher win probability every time he takes the ball because of the way wins work, so you still have that. And then, of course, there's other ceiling beyond that. Oh, 140, 150. If, if those things can happen... I mean, he throws... He almost throws like a reliever. I mean, he throws, throws like a reliever. Max, max, like max effort. Yeah, and then and kind of fastball slider these days. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a smart way to think about it. I think I think that we looked at like you know Fangraphs depth charts, and, you know, and then and like we said, well, you know, even if he only throws 120 or 140 innings, uh, he's going to be a top ten starter, right? 
And so we figured, well, that seems like a number he can make. It's not a number he has made <laughs> in the last three years, you know? So really, we should have projected, I mean, just, just looking at innings pitch without any knowledge of anything else, we probably should have projected him this year for 80 innings. He could still get there. But if he gets to 80 innings, he will be more grouped with, with the elite relievers, I think. You know what's hard about that, though, is that 2020 is misleading because he made 12 starts that year. You couldn't really make more. So it looks like another year where he was short. So you really would have to project him on two years of injuries, not three years of short workloads. Yeah, but workloads. most projections, like, you know, kind of, they, they go three years back and they wait the last year heaviest. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, I, I think... I'm guilty of it. I definitely saw more of the what would go right volume-wise for him, and it's still possible, even though it seems less likely with him on the IL right now. But if he comes back and he's healthy the rest of the season, then it ends up being the highest total he's had since 2019. That's right. <laughs> and then we go right back down the rabbit it's hole It's still again. in the possibility, range of possibilities. He threw a light bullpen session. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. He's, a, he's an elite reliever with, uh, with catnip. Surrounded by catnip. <laughs> yeah, right. If the market ever treats him like that, then that's probably a phenomenal time to have Jacob Degrom on all your rosters. The market probably won't treat him like that for like two more years. And if it's he an does argument this for against two more years, buying him in the first three rounds. Yes, it's, it's. I think Josh is Josh is on point. Josh, be smart. Don't don't look pie in the sky with Degrom. Look where you're <laughs> looking right now. You're closer to right than than I am with Degrom at this point. Uh, thanks a lot for that email. Uh, we had a shallow league decisions question from David, kind of mentioning some of the names from earlier. You, know, you get these shallow leagues where you have to choose between the hot starter, the rookies that are up, all these things. You got to make these quick decisions because people are changing players constantly. But at what point do you actually start to confidently make decisions in a league that shallow? Is it different than a 12 team league and a 15 team league? And like, what do you need to see to believe in a player? And what do you need to see in a 10 team league to no longer believe in a player? Because the thresholds, to me, seem different, but it's hard to quantify. Yeah, I think you have to be faster. Because you know that the replacement level is higher. So you can afford you, to be if wrong. If you make a mistake, you can just go get somebody that's... Like, let's say you have someone that, you know, is, you think that he's going to be worth 100% of this value, but he comes out and he's giving you 20% of the value, right? It's better to not keep nursing that along and keep putting in numbers into your into your league that are at 20 or 40 percent of that when you can go to the wire and get 80 percent of that right now right and then let's say you're you're wrong and that guy goes back to 100 you missed that but you've been getting 80s instead of the 20s while that you know while that guy was slumping and then even if your 80 guy falls off you can probably go and get another 80 right so at some point getting a, a string of 80 percenters instead of your 100% guy is is worth it rather than put in a whole month of 20%. Right. I think this is the type of league where prospect clutching can be even more costly. I think the toughest player right now for me in a league like this is Gunnar Henderson. I think Henderson was mentioned in one of David's emails. Like, How long do you wait on Gunnar Henderson in a league that shallow where you could get so much more from that spot so easily? We're at 37 games in right now, four homers, one steal, a 184, 340, 351 line, so a bad slash line. The underlying guys numbers. The minors that could come up, he could even be sent down. We just learned this from Alec Thomas. 
it, it, again, also, it, it's even more important. Gunnar Henderson's ceiling is so much higher than than Alec Thomas's. I think people can see it as truth a little easier with Henderson. If they send him down for two weeks or two months or whatever they send him down for, it doesn't mean that Gunnar Henderson won't be the player that you think he can be in the long run. Jared Kelnick, good example of things taking a little while, having a meandering sort of path to mm-hmm. maybe reach the eventual baseline that you're looking for the underlying numbers for Henderson are still very encouraging he's not chasing pitches outside the zone he's near a 10% barrel rate again I I think this is still a very good player in the long run even though it's been a, a very a tough start league, to the season. How, how many 180s do you want to put up yeah how long do you want to deal with that I think the the other way to think about it is if you haven't made this decision already how far back would you have needed to see a turnaround to justify holding him. If you look back at the last two weeks and he was better, would that be enough? Or would one week be enough? I think that's the that's the type of question people are often wrestling with. Has he turned it around at all? Are any of his splits good? (laughs) No, you go back like 10 days, it's still a 30% K rate. I mean, it's a little more power in terms of extra base hits during that span, but I think I think in a shallow redraft league, I think you can justify five in May. I think you can justify the drop on Henderson in those leagues, even though the long game is still very encouraging. You're playing a shorter game than that right now. Yeah, and I mean uh, that's yeah that, that's 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 sort of my point too. It's like okay, well you look at his projections, and th- that's a hundred percent Gunnar Henderson right now is you know two two fifty. 15 homers and seven steals. Are you telling me you can't get anybody that gives you most of that on the wire right now? Right. You know, you just need to find somebody with a little power and a little bit of speed that's out on the wire. So yeah, I do think you, you want to be more aggressive. It makes it harder. Like in my 12 team dynasty, it makes it a little bit hard because you know, it's a shallow league, but it's also a dynasty. So last year I nursed O'Neill Cruz along all year and I kept getting offers, but I was like, I think this is going to be worth it. And before the injury, it looked like really this was worth it. But I also have nursed Alec Thomas along all year, and now it's looking like it may not have been worth it. So, uh, you know, and I guess the cap, the only caveat I'd have is like if you can put him on your bench and do something else and leave him on your bench for a while, like that's that's my process in 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 shallower leagues is like before I I want to drop the guy, I put him on my bench, I wait two weeks. If I still want to drop the guy, I drop the guy. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that period is probably elapsed now with Henderson. But I think yeah. you could definitely look at the the component skills across the board and just say, okay, this is actually what a bench is for. Like if you want to hold a guy you can't use, you want a lot of reasons to believe in that player. We've seen power, we've seen speed, we've seen patience. We're not seeing it right now. This is a lineup on the rise. Those are all good things. So that might be the best case scenario. He might be good enough to hold, whereas a lot of other players uh, in that format fall off the roster. And it's not about what you paid back on draft day as much as it's about what you're still seeing in the underlying numbers. That would be your reason for still buying into a better second half or a better next four months coming from Henderson. But the demotion does seem like it's very possible uh, at this point because they've got plenty of alternatives and they're playing for now. One last shout out on the way out. Uh, I mentioned my kids' uh, uh, playoff run in All House. Uh, they won fourteen to one to get to the championship game. It's double elimination though, so they got to beat the champions twice. Ah, uh, nice format. But I mentioned them because last time I mentioned them, uh, I've had a, a bunch of people reach out. So 
Uh, one was a, a cool story. A, a person working for a team right now uh, was uh, was in All House, uh, and he, he had one of his teammates is on that team is working for this major league team with him now too. Uh, so we got two two All House listeners, potentially uh, former All House listeners, and then some other people reached out to other parents in the league saying, "I think uh, Eno's kid is in is, is on your kid's team." <laughs> so uh, it's led to a bunch of fun conversations, and uh, uh, there's a the All House benefactor uh, really enjoyed the stories I, I told. Uh, the member of the All House family that has funded uh, this team for many many years uh about the story and she really enjoyed it so uh they get to play again thursday night uh and if they win they get to play for all of the marbles so that is your your weekly or daily all house uh little league palo alto little league update we'll get to the uh We'll get the results next Monday on that episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you got questions for a future episode, be sure to send those our way. Rates and barrels at gmail.com is the best email address to use for those. On Twitter, Eno's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you want a subscription to The Athletic, it's $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. It's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>